This episode of Forging Ahead features my Twitter friend, Arvid Call. You can find him at A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. Uh, this was really fun. The topic that we dove into in some detail here is all about audience first. I feel like we could have gone for three hours. And I think that if you want some more information here, Arvid runs a podcast called The Bootstrap Founder. And the episode you're looking for is number 51, finding an audience for your side business. The framework that he goes through is so valuable. It's one of those things that prompted me to want to pick up a pen and take some notes. And and it really did feel like it moved me to want to take action right away, which I know Arvid loves as a compliment. And uh, I think you should go check it out. I'll put some links in the show notes for other things that you can find out about Arvid. But without further ado, here's our man Arvid. Hey, this is Tom Sullivan. Thanks for listening to Forging Ahead. I'm breathing some new life into this project by inviting guests to come on and teach us about a topic that they know as well as anyone on earth because they've done it and are doing it today. These are the real deal practitioners. If you enjoy this, please leave a review on Apple or send this to a friend. Thanks. Hey, it's Tom, and I'm lucky enough to have Arvid call with me today. And I found Arvid on Twitter, and I am a follower of of what he tweets out, and I love his whole site, The Bootstrap Founder. But Arvid, why don't you take a minute and tell us where we're hearing from you? Uh, I know you're not in the States like me, so tell me where you are and give us a, a quick intro. All right. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super yeah, excited to have this conversation. I'm in Berlin, in Germany right now. I'm German by birth, but uh, moved around the world a couple of times. And now I'm back in Germany, uh, weathering out this weird year. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a software engineer. I, I was one, at least at some point. And then I turned into an entrepreneur. And now I'm a writer, apparently. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wrote a book called Zero to Sold, which uh, pretty much is about the journey of me building starting building and selling a whole business, a whole SaaS business with my girlfriend. We built that thing together for two years and then sold it. Um, and the book is an outgrowth of the learnings of that experience. Um, and now that I've written the book, uh, it turns out writing a book is actually quite fun if you have something to say. So I'm writing a new one, um, which is a whole other level of exciting because uh, now it's replicating prior success. So that's always that's a hard thing. Um, for an entrepreneur on any level, but for a writer in particular. And I'm having a, a blast at that, particularly because it's a community-focused focus, community book. So I'm, I'm looking forward to a conversation about whatever you want to talk about today, but that's where I am right now. Yeah, let's let's hop right into the project that you're working on now, Audience First. Can you tell us about the project and then tell us about how you're doing it too, because I find <laughs> that maybe the most fascinating part. Yeah, so there's, there's this whole movement um, that has been going on for quite a while called um, customer development. That's, I think, it's a strategic term that has been a technical term in the, in the world of business. And I, I would say an improved version of that seems to be meandering through the internet at the moment. And that's the audience-first movement. It's the audience-first revolution, where it's not just about having an idea on what you want to build and then... De developing an audience, developing uh, a customer base, but actually putting the audience at the front of your business and deciding what to do after you figure out who you're working for, right? The, the idea is actually the last part. It's not the first part anymore. When it comes to building a business, it's now one of the consequences of making choices, not the initial source of where all of your intention comes from. So that's what I found very intriguing over the last years um, developing, seeing it develop around me. And since I wrote a lot about how to start with the preparation phase of a business in, in Zero to Sold, the audience being the first step there as well, because that's also how the business that we built, Feedback Panda, was initially conceptualized. Like we looked at, okay, who are the people we are most um, interested in serving? And that was online teachers, not um, at the least, because Danielle, my partner herself, was an online teacher at the time, and she had obvious, clear problems 
So we were like, oh yeah, it's an interesting group to help because we can already tell they have critical issues. They are looking for solutions. They're trying to fix it themselves, but they don't really get to um, deal with it the right way because they're not technical enough. Again, online teachers, but I was, and I could build something for them. So we went with the audience and their critical problem and our solution approach first, and then we developed the product. And I write about this in the book, how to do this step-by-step or how we did it step-by-step. So now that I that the book has been out for, I think, four and a half months, it's not too long, but I uh, have, uh, have sold a couple thousand um, copies of it. The feedback from people is um, predominantly, I'm stuck in the beginning. It's always the same. And it's not a surprise, I guess, because everybody wants to build a business, but there's just so much to do that people try a couple things and then many of them give up. It's just they have a full-time job and now they also apparently have three kids that they have to deal with every single day at home because there's this virus going around, right? So people don't really have that much time for side projects. And if you want to build a sustainable business, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of effort to get the validation part right in the beginning. Because if you don't, if you don't check that you're actually selling potentially to an audience of people who might really want to buy your product, if you don't have any kind of inclination, if that is the truth, then you're just building something for nobody. Like literally nobody. Nobody needs it. Nobody wants it. Nobody will buy it. And you build it for nobody. So to avoid that, you want to start with a lot of validation. And I know it's hard, particularly for engineering types, for people with a more technical background, because we are trained to see problems and trained to see challenges and solutions and products all the time. We're never really trained to see people and their issues and their goals and their aspirations. For some reason, technical university doesn't teach you anything about people. So it's, uh, I, I would assume if you're um, a business with a business background, it's more people-focused, but still, it's always product centric, right? There's a lot of about product, about sales, about producing something and selling it to people. That process in itself, like figuring out what to produce and whom to sell it to, to me, feels often skipped over. That's my personal experience. And that also seems to be the feedback from the people who've read the book and who followed along with my podcast, my tweeting, my excessive tweeting, and my um, blog that I uh, write an article for every week and the newsletter that goes out of that but people tell me i need more help with the audience part i need more help with the initial thing like who do i help who do i find like how do i find those people where are they like how do i figure out what their problems are can i talk to them do i have to talk to them you know all this kind of stuff seems to be in the air for many people and they don't really know what to do so i thought hmm it would be nice to help those people because i gave them the whole walkthrough through our experience in the book, and that's like 500 pages of a lot of information, which yeah. is more general in a, in a way, right? Because I try to touch on every single point along the way from us having the idea to validating it, then to the technical infrastructure, the choices we made there, customer service, what tool to use, and how to talk to people, what, you know, all these little steps up until um, selling the business, how to do due diligence, like all these different, extremely... Um, yeah, extremely broad topics. That's what I go into there. So Audience First is supposed to be a really, really focused book on audience. And since Audience First as a concept derives its meaning from asking the audience first what they need, the book itself is an audience first product, supposedly. So that's why I tweeted out um, a week ago that I'm writing the book I prepared a landing page for people where they could sign up to be an alpha reader and later, I guess, a beta reader, but right now just really getting the first draft. And I put in a, a form for where they could just tell me what they want to read about in this book. I mean, I already have a couple ideas what I want to talk about. I recently released a blog post on how to find an audience to then serve, like a step-by-step approach, a guide. And we can talk about that later if you like, because that one has also been received with a lot of enthusiasm. I always mm-hmm. like that when people say, oh, I'm going to try this. And then I'm, I'm always like, yeah, it's like, this is nice. Because <laughs> there's nothing better than people actually doing something, um, a guide, going through a guide and actually acting on it mm. to validate if it needs to be changed, if it needs to be made better. And it's a continuous validation. That's the idea behind this whole approach. And that's also the idea behind me writing the book. I want to throw a couple ideas out there, see which ones stick see which ones people suggest to me that I have never thought about before, and then merged all of this into a draft 
throw it out, see what people think. Is it too fast, too slow, too general, too specific? Enough examples, too few examples, you know, all these things that as a writer, you kind of have to guess mostly if you don't engage your audience, like how much content does my audience read, right? Do I need a short book or a long book or how much actionable stuff do they want and how much do they want the kind of um, more strategic stuff, right? How much is tactical? How much is strategic? All these things are questions that I can answer. I mean, I am kind of my own audience, but then again, I'm one out of millions out there. Might just as well ask the millions what they think. So that's the approach behind um, the audience first approach to audience first. Yeah, where did that come from? Like, I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody write a book in that way. My guess is like the traditional writing process is you come up with like a pitch or a proposal and you go around and and maybe get an agent and try to sell it Mm -hmm. to a publisher. But this feels completely different. Where where did it come from? Traditional publishing is um, interesting to say the least, right? It's, uh, it's an extremely lengthy process. It involves a lot of, I would almost call it bureaucracy because there's really structure like in place. Yeah, gate, gatekeeping uh, to no end. Like the agent is the first gatekeeper. Try getting one as an unpublished author to begin with. Just look at you and they go back to the ones that are already published. And right. then they need to go to the actual, um, yeah, the, the, the distributors, right? The publishers and give them a manuscript that hopefully fits in with their theme and then sell them that. And then you get an advance and then you kind of have to earn that out. And maybe you do, and they do the marketing, but they don't really know who you speak to. It's like a very, very traditional process. I self-published my book, Zero to Soul, because I didn't want to be part of this and I wanted to be fast. So, you know, like I didn't want any middlemen in there. Um, not necessarily just for the royalties. Like obviously royalties are different when you self-publish, all the money goes to you. Well, and Amazon, I guess, because um, they, they print the thing for me. I, I'm self-published through their KDP, the Kindle Direct Publishing System, where you can just upload a PDF and they make make a book out of it and sell it to people through their, their, the Amazon platform, which is great. Yeah. But they kind of keep almost like 70% of what I make. So you could guess that they're a monopoly, maybe, kind of. <laughs> you, you would assume with this kind of behavior. But honestly, yeah. it's it's still better than not having a book in print at all and going through a publisher, like if I went with a traditional publisher on that book, I probably still wouldn't be published. I, I, I did, I published the whole thing like six months ago, or five months ago at this point, right? Or four and a half, you know, I don't know. Like it's half a year, probably. And yeah. um, that's when I at least started the whole publication process. With a traditional publisher, I would look into mid-21, I guess, for when the thing hits the shelves and then some marketing would happen. And maybe I wouldn't have found a publisher to this point because it's literally my first book I ever wrote. So who who knows if they would have taken me, if I would have even found an agent. So with a self-published book, there's also much more control that I have personally. Um, I, I released a book on yeah June 29th. And on June 31st, I already had published two revisions that fixed four typos altogether that people found in this book. And I'm glad to say that until now, there has not been found another typo in the book of 500 pages, my greatest accomplishment. But I guess that also um, just uh, is the reason, um, the reason for that is I had editors look into it, right? I had professional editors edit the book twice for, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm German. I, my English is not my first language. And, you know, some things just slip up and there's a typo here, a typo there. With that many pages, you just can't keep uh, all of this um under control no matter how many tools you use to check there will always be sure. something so having editors really helped so and i paid a lot of money to to get that done a couple thousand uh, euros at that point but still um i have control of the book right if if anybody tells me hey that link doesn't work anymore or hey the, the i i found a not a typo but an, like an, a content error like something you said is untrue i could just go into my my manuscript fix that create the necessary files, upload this, and tomorrow any newly printed book will not contain the error anymore. And with a publisher that does like typesetting in a traditional way, they would send like the manuscript in the, as a Word document or something to um, a person somewhere who sits in front of Adobe InDesign and puts like words to the page and designs it. Everything I do is automated. Just like the business that we built was highly automated, the book that I built is also highly automated. So... Um, you know, it's just more control for me. And I think for audience first, that means that 
every step along the way, every draft of the manuscript that I write, I can immediately publish out to the people that actually want to read it as an alpha version. I can gather their feedback. Um, there are tools out there. Like there are other authors that come from a SaaS background, just like myself, that are currently working on tools to facilitate this kind of communication between draft readers and the author um, as a web platform. It's this, this kind of serial entrepreneur thing taken to the next level. You're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur, huh? I'm going to write a book about it. Hmm, there was a problem with my book. And then I'm entrepreneur again, building something for authors, right? It's this ever um, repeating cycle of finding problems while you do something cool. And then the next project is solving those problems that, again, turns into something cool. So it's this, that's why serial entrepreneurs do what they do. They just always run into walls. And instead of like walking around them, they just run at them until they solve the problem. And um, yeah, I may have strayed a bit from the actual question, but that's the reason why I'm self-published. And that's the reason why I think Audience First as such hasn't been used um, as a conceptual way to write a book before because so many writers eventually go through traditional publishing because quite honestly, the advances are better, right? I mean, I, I don't really know how much money I made from the book right now. I, I don't keep track too closely because that's not my objective. I mean, obviously, I, I sold a business a couple months ago or like a year ago. Don't really write for money at this point, but probably around 20-something thousand euros I made from the book so far, which is nice. But yeah. had I sold this book to um, the manuscript to a big publisher and had they understood how well it would sell and with our whole marketing power behind it, it may have been double that, maybe three times, maybe four times that as an advance. Right, and then earning out percentages um, after that. So self-publishing depends on how much you charge, I guess. I kept the book price really, really low because I wanted people all over the world, even where income um, parity is, is not given, right? Where people don't make as much money as people here in Germany or in the States or Canada, mm -hmm. you know, like third world countries, um, non-industrial countries. All over the world, people should know how to build a SaaS. It's a global business. Like you honestly don't need to be in the States or in Germany to build a SaaS, right? You can do this from any place. So mm -hmm. that's why I priced this uh, gigantic book really low so people could read it, which means less money for me, but it also means more distribution. And apparently that meant a lot of pe people read the book and now want to read the sequel, right? So there's always, always an upside to all of these things. Um, yeah, and I, and I intend to... Like be really, really diligent in updating people on the success of the book, on my struggles with the book, just building in public in general. And I think this kind of answers uh, the question as well from a different angle. There's been this whole movement of building things in public, not just telling people that you're building stuff, but sharing the journey, right? There's, there's people who've been sharing the whole journey of their business on a podcast, regularly updating blog articles. Um, some people do it through interviews on other podcasts, but they always keep people updated on where they are. Mm -hmm. And this has been such a positive thing for the community because the moment you share your struggles, you're vulnerable. And if you, as a somewhat successful founder or a very successful founder, I'm talking about people like Justin Jackson here, co-founder of Transistor FM, or Paul Jarvis, co-founder of Fathom Analytics, also writer of, um, author of the company of one book, people who have renown in the industry and beyond. And if they can talk about the struggle with their business, then you as a guy sitting in, let's say India or like Australia, just somewhere not in Silicon Valley and, and not in Berlin or in New York, in those big cities with the big tech hubs, you, you can notice, okay, I'm not the only one who struggles with these things. They struggle at a higher level, but they struggle and they're vocal about it. They talk through their problems, they solve them, they overcome them, next problem. If they can do it, I can do that too. And I think building in public is just this, this wave of encouragement that radiates from people of some, with some level of success. And I love to hear those podcasts. I love to listen to those people speak. I, and and as, as a consequence, I just want to do it myself. Right? I update people about how my book is doing. I update about it, my side projects and my, my next book, how that is going. And but my, my problems are, I have questions. It's just nice to share because somewhere someone sees this and is encouraged to do their own thing. And that's all I want, honestly. That's why I wrote the book. I wrote it for myself five years ago to make starting a business easier for myself, right? And since I can't time travel, I have now give it to other people who are 
at the point where I was five years ago. Yeah, I guess a couple follow-ups there. Do you think that also serves the builder well too? Like, is there, had you gone into like, I remember maybe five years ago or 10 years ago when stealth mode was like this big thing Mm -hmm. where you would, you would let some people know that you're building something and that you'll resurface at some point to announce what you've built. And this building in public thing is, is kind of completely different. Do you think that those two approaches building in public versus that stealth mode is building in public a better way to build a business as well? Does it lead to more sales? Well, that's that's an interesting question. I recently uh, read the Four Steps to the Epiphany. Book is right next to me. Almost forgot the title. One. I had to had to check just now. It's a heavy one in in many ways, right? It's a heavy book itself, but it's also really um, not the easiest read. No, so it's I, not. I I intend to um, I, I have a lot of notes in the book right now. I intend to kind of take those really interesting lessons and turn them into something more readable within audience first itself, because it's just a great reference, but it's in the, in the beginning couple paragraphs or not paragraphs, but chapters where um, the author talks about the approach to building a business, right? You can join a completely new market with a new product. You can join an old pro- old market with a new product. You can join an old market with a cheaper product and you can join an old, old uh, or existing market with a niche product. And depending on which approach you take, also kind of makes it interesting how you communicate it. Because if you are in an existing market and you're going in there with a niche product, well, then there are already customers out there maybe looking for it. So it might actually be interesting for you to to gather them around you or to just um, trumpet the idea out into the space and to see where it resonates most and then double down on that audience because you want to build a niche product. You just don't really know which niche to target, which one is the most... um, willing to pay which one has the most critical critical problems because you you can solve some problems for some people in any market right you can dig out a niche for yourself you can make up niches if you want to the fact is they might be lucrative or they might not be and that's what you want to figure out with the whole validation approach and if you do this in public then invalidating stuff comes so much easier people telling you yeah i don't care about this is such an interesting invalidation um, message, right? It's really, oh yeah, I, I, I have this problem, but I solve it with a, an Excel sheet once every couple months. I don't care. Or yeah, I just delegate it to somebody else. Well, these are like red, uh, this is, yeah, the red alert kind of situation. Like it's not critical, might not want to be the thing for you to build a business around. Mm-hmm. The thing is, if you are either entering a completely new market with something that doesn't exist and doesn't have an existing following or an existing um, audience already, or you you have something that outperforms your competition in a certain way that might give you a lot of market share if you can pull many people into your business, then talking about this might not be interesting because all of a sudden you might alert your competition to a shortcoming in their product. They might start investigating what you're building. They might copy things before you're done because they have the deeper pockets and it really depends on how you approach your whole business, like who you serve, right? In what market, which audience do you serve in there? What is your competition doing? Do they even exist? Or could they potentially outperform you? And I think that really makes a big difference in how you communicate. And stealth mode to me is something that a lot of um, highly VC funded businesses, like businesses that had a lot of power, a lot of money invested into them by somebody else, they need it to keep the edge, to keep the advantage, because somebody with a similar idea would just get more money and would know how to use it, right? It's, uh, that is a, a yeah often a problem in these kind of businesses. But you know, if they were able to outperform them, then keeping your mouth shut and not telling people until you've done enough to actually grab that market share and lock it in with your, I, I don't know, maybe even with intellectual property or something, right? Something that can protect you. You have a moat. If you can do that, if you can build your moat before people see your castle, great. But now there's this bootstrap revolution going on where a lot of indie founders, founders without external capital, or at least without venture capital, where people throw millions at you to do hyperscale and outgrow um, any kind of expectation of sustainable growth, just grab all the market and then double down on it. 
that used to be the way. And now there's this, okay, I can build a micro SaaS. I can build a little software as a service product that serves these 50,000 customers potentially. And they each pay a hundred bucks. And even if I just get 10% of the market share or 5% of that particular niche market that is actual, it is actually reachable by your little business there, right? It's not like you want 10% of people who eat food. No, it's you want 10% of, in our example, online English teachers who teach English as a second language to Chinese children through the web, um, using the browser, working for Chinese online English teaching companies. That is a much more attainable goal to get 10% of that market, which is exactly the percentage of the market that we got with our little two-person SaaS business. So um, if you're looking into those kind of businesses, they are all niche markets. They are all niche businesses with niche, precise niche solutions to niche problems held by an audience that is often tribal in nature, that is often a community. And that just lends itself to being public because that lends itself to working in public, to communicating, to embedding yourself in the community, to working from within this community to figure out what you want to build. And that's the difference. Yeah, I love that. Where, um, where did you learn to speak English? Your English is excellent. Two things, World of Warcraft and watching a lot of Al Bundy on TV. You're kidding me. <laughs> it's mostly World of Warcraft. Like, if At you, if what you... age? Like, when did you start speaking English? Um, well, in Germany, they, they teach us uh, the first foreign language in school and starts in sixth grade, something. Okay. But um, that w- once, you, once you leave school, you learn how to speak properly because they teach you British English for some reason. And, and like a, a posh British dialect, I won't even, won't even go for it, right? But um, they, uh, yeah, it's, it's just like somewhat conversational. But the moment you have a hobby, the moment you have something that you really care about, and I guess online gaming, is something that I do care about and did care about uh, in, in the past. You just immerse yourself in the community that you're given. And if you played World of Warcraft back in 2003, where they didn't even have like uh, European servers, everything was in the United States because that's where Blizzard started releasing that game. Um, you met a lot of people from all over the world and they needed to communicate. So I threw myself in there, played the game for <clears throat> a decade or two, and then, uh, yeah, I was capable of communicating with people pretty um, succinctly, I guess, because that re- it really helps to have a group of 40 people trying to figure out how to slay a dragon. You Jeez. get, you get communicating, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, did you write, do you write and did you write zero to sold in English? Yeah. I, I haven't written anything. And the first German draft of zero to sold was massive, right? I remember following your writing, like that thing had been cut down. Yeah. It's just amazing <laughs> to me that you picked the, your second language. And that becomes the language that you write in. That's wild to me. Thanks. But I guess it's a, um, it's a necessity. But if you're a software engineer, like all documentation to all tools is English. Like you, you may have uh, the Got luck it. of finding the WordPress docs in German, maybe. But the moment you dive down into some obscure library that you need to com- convert some kind of number into another number, you won't find anything but English documentation. So it's just like the language of the trade. And I guess the same goes for internet businesses, right? The, the, the main target market for almost all SaaS businesses, at least up till a couple of years ago, was the United States. It's just really what it was. If you look at Stripe and their availability um, for online payments, was US first. And only recently have they added Germany and um, India and other countries to the list of supported currencies even. So now you can actually build a business for another nation that is not necessarily the United States, but it's just really the focus of what most internet business was. And I guess what most internet was in the beginning, right? Uh, any, anything related to the World Wide Web was English by mm-hmm. um, just the origin of the technology, but that, that has changed. Um, th- at least for the target markets that you're interested in, but the language of the lingua franca of the web is English still, right? Got and it. yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad I speak it. I also I'm I'm in a, a relationship with a Canadian that that makes makes it a, a daily situation as well because we speak English <laughs> at home. Um, yeah. Danielle being Canadian, um, that it's just it's uh, funny enough. I'm sitting in the middle of Berlin, surrounded by Germans, but barely speak German at all. But hey, it's, uh, it's what it is. <laughs> Yeah, I guess let's um, let's try to make our transition into audience. Can you mm-hmm. define what you mean when you say audience in your context? Right. So I've been I've been working on this because 
um, there's something about writing a book called Audience First where I really need to have my definition of audience down. And I was checking all over the place for definitions of audience, and they vary significantly anywhere. Anybody, any founder you talk to might have a slightly different definition of what an audience is. And currently, where I'm at is um, an audience is a group of people that should be interested in you, your product, or your business. That's as specific as I can be without ignoring the things that other people ignore in their definitions. Because um, one of the things that I always hear is when people talk about audience first, they see it at like a rock star kind of audience, like concert music, right? You stand in front of a stage, somebody's performing, and they perform super well, and you applaud, you sing along, you consume. That is, for many people, what they think an audience is in the sense of a business. You make your cool product, you talk to the people, and you push it out, and they buy it, they consume. To me, that is far too short-sighted because an audience um, that I want to be um, proud to serve is an audience that is on my level. It's an audience of peers. And not only do I want to build something in stealth mode and then throw it at my audience that I've built in some way on Twitter or social media or as a podcast following listeners or whatever, I want those people that I want to serve to be the reason why my product exists, not just the reason why my product is selling, right? To me, that's the big difference between an, a bi-directional audience and this kind of eat whatever I feed you audience that some people conceptualize when they think about audience first. And that I think is the, the biggest problem right now that I'm trying to clear up with the book. I think that was the instigating point for me where I thought I need to write this because I really want to convince people that there's more to audience first than building up a Twitter following and then selling them an ebook, right? That you, you see that in a, in a lot of businesses that approach audience first with this, oh yeah, I'm going to build an audience for my product and then I'm going to sell them a product completely ignoring the fact that which product to build should be a decision made after you figure out who you're serving. So audience first, it's not just first build an audience. To me, it means build for an audience first, right? First build with an audience, built in a collaborative fashion. So um, that is the distinction that I make in the definition of audience. An audience so, is so much more. It's the users of your product that you have today that you might have in the future, that you had before and that are not users anymore, people that might be not even working in the industry you're serving, but might eventually move in there because they've heard of your product and they kind of want to see what's going on or they heard of you talking about this industry in, in glowing words or something. And an audience is so much more than this passive group of people willing to be fed a product. And that's what I'm, why I want to write this book. Yeah, I love that. Um, I hope this doesn't break your model. Like I told you before, I hit record. I listened to uh, one of the most recent episodes of your podcast, and I'll link to all this stuff as well. But you go into sort of the your guide has five columns, um, and like I just the way that you broke it down just like made me feel stupid listening to it. I'm like, of course, like after doing it, you're like, of this is so uh, on the head. So. I guess I'd love to take two of the parts of your guide mm -hmm. and talk about them in a little bit more depth. So the yeah. first one I want to hit would be awareness. Yeah. Um, and the way that you went through it on the podcast, I found like it made me just grab my pen and want to start doing this mm -hmm. for myself. Can you talk a little bit about how you can identify audiences that exist? Yeah, uh, that's that's so nice to hear too, because that's exactly what I wanted. Yeah, and awareness to me is becoming aware of um, the the obvious and the not so obvious audiences that you could potentially serve. So pretty much, um, you are part of many groups, many communities, many audiences for somebody else, for somebody else's products and somebody else's business already. And every single day, you're interacting with dozens, hundreds of objects or people or concepts in your life. And all of these, in some way or another, have at their core a group of people that um, they're serving, right? Um, we're both recording a podcast right now. I'm talking um, into this pop filter, and beneath it is my microphone, and you have the same going on on your side, right? The pop filter itself has a story. Like, if you, if you look into Amazon and look for pop filters, there's, like, 
hundreds of companies selling all different kinds of pop filters. And if you think about who has the need for this, you think about podcasters, um, voice actors, you think about um, you have singers, and all of a sudden you have three distinct groups of people that have their own little problems in their own little world. And just because I was looking at a pop filter, and if you can do this from just looking at this $8 piece of plastic, imagine what you can do by just checking out your surroundings in an active way every single hour, minute of your life, right? You're surrounded by products, you're surrounded by things that serve somebody. And if you are looking for somebody to serve, well, why not trace who you already kind of belong to, right? You have a computer in front of yourself, software engineers, writers, um, movie makers, just you could go on for hours just looking at certain objects. And the idea behind the awareness step is to really let, let, um, let loose and think of all the different kind of audiences that you could imagine and put them in a list. My, the idea here is to really brainstorm the most different kinds of audiences that you can imagine. And then through the other steps, start to, to rein them in, start to rank them, how well they fit with you and how well they actually might cause you to create an interesting business and what they pay for it. All these little steps come, come later. But at first, you're really just almost, um, yeah, like a brainstorming exercise, writing down anything you can do. That's, that's what I want people to start the exploration for audiences with, because that might lead to the most curious things that you would have never thought about if you just looked at what you do professionally. Like I said, I, I'm a software engineer, right? And if I hadn't experienced both entrepreneurship and being an author and, and now being a person on Twitter, I don't even know what that is really, but you know, <laughs> building a community around the interests that I have, then I would consider the audience for my business to be software engineers. And I wouldn't stray too far from that because that's what I know and that's what I serve, right? And for any software engineer, like we know how hard it is to sell us something. Why would we willingly try to build a business for people who we know love a challenge to build solutions to their problems? Like it just doesn't make sense. There's so many more people out there desperately looking for help because they don't have the technical skills that other people have that we might bring, like online teachers, right? That was an audience that was clear as day. They were struggling, even trying to build some sort of system in Google Sheets or Excel to solve their little student feedback problem that we then eventually solved with a tool for them. They were building the most yeah, crazy contraptions just to solve their problems. And the, the moment you see people building weird things in Excel, you know there's a SaaS business somewhere in there, right? So just, yeah. and, and you, can, you can see that. You can talk to your family. You can talk to your siblings. You can talk to your parents. You can talk to your friends and ask them about their professional lives. Like I, I have people in my circle of friends that are plumbers, that are civil engineers all over the place, right? And they all have little problems, challenges that they have on a day-to-day -day basis, on a week, monthly basis, and you can talk to them. And once they give you something that you, that you feel like is, mm, maybe this might be interesting, you could dig deeper in it at some later point. But just noting down plumber and civil engineer is already a good step because you're aware that those people might need a technical solution to their problem. And if you wonder what a plumber might need from a software engineer, like just think about that they have an inventory system that they need to make sure that their customers are like customer relationships management system or yeah, that their um, orders uh, are fulfilled correctly, invoices are sent out correctly. Everybody has tech solvable, a tech enabled, potentially tech enabled problems out there, right? Doesn't matter if they're a hairdresser, they also need to um, give people loyalty cards. Well, how, how do you print those, right? There's probably some software that needs to be written for that. And it's, it's um, just finding all of these things around you in your daily life, in your own professional life, in your hobbies that you have, in yeah, your circle of friends, your circle of family, um, your significant other, like in our case with Feedback Panda, if you just have your eyes and ears open and you make a note, whenever a new audience comes to your mind, you are gonna end up with a list of 30, 50, 100 different audiences. And that is an amazing first step because now you can figure out for each of those how well they fit into your personal um, concept of building a business, right? Do, I, I, I did that as an exercise for myself. And I wrote down tax advisors and lawyers because I interacted with those people. And once I went to the next step, do I want to work for this audience? And I had to give them a rating between zero and 10, zero being no, and 10 was, yeah, 
please. I gave them like a minus five or something because it's just an audience that I don't personally want to empower. They're already powerful enough and they yeah. have their own little problems that um, in, in the interaction, right? There's a lot of like social, like psychodynamics. I don't like that kind of stuff. I want to help people that actually need help in a, in a way that is a make or break for their lives, make or break for their business lives. And I don't think uh, lawyers or tax advisors need that. But that's the second step. And that's the great thing about this, because the moment you start ranking these ideas of an audience as how much do I want to empower them, you start figuring out, okay, these people in particular seem to be people that I resonate with. I, For me, for software engineers, gave them an eight. Can't, can't help it. But for bootstrap founders or for authors, they get a flat 10 from me because these are communities that personally I'm so involved in. I'm, I'm so engaged in. I could not spend a day without going to Twitter and checking out how people are doing with their businesses and how people are writing their books. It's just, I need to know, right? So I really want to help those people. I really, really want to help them. And then that second step crystallizes that. Third step then is checking out, are there interesting problems and opportunities in there? Because that also is different, right? Some people really want to help gamers. And I definitely like being a gamer and I like being helped. But I sure know as a gamer, I spend zero money on stuff that is not a game or a console or a computer, right? It's super hard to convince me to pay a monthly fee for some gaming adjacent service that is not gaming itself. Personally, that's my opinion. And that's why gaming got a score of like three of 10 on the opportunity scale for me, just because I know for myself, and this can be different for other people who are in different communities, right? World of Warcraft community, that's why I am. They don't spend money on that. They, they rather spend it on swag, like a shirt with For the Horde on, on, in front of it or something. That's what people mm -hmm. buy, but they wouldn't buy like a SaaS subscription necessarily to a guild um, website, at, at least not anymore. They used to do that, but now everything is free. You know, like I know this from my from my own perspective, but if you're part of a different community, maybe the League of Legends community, where there's a lot of... Um, uh, in app purchases going on, a lot of like people buying skins for their characters in game, so they're already used to spending little amounts of money here and there. Maybe a service would make sense there. Who's to say, right? It's definitely not me. And that's an exercise for every single founder to do for themselves. And some might find gamers are a perfect audience. And I found a couple of people on Twitter who built gaming adjacent products. And even though they struggle to make sales, they found a repeatable model. They are actually cash flow positive and they are um, making a four or five figure MRR business out of this. So, yeah. And, and that's why I'm trying to say this. Like, everybody's experience is different and everybody's numbers, everybody's ranking that goes into this process is also different. But in the end, what you end up with, uh, end up with is a list of a couple of audiences that score really, really high on each of those steps. The last two mm -hmm. steps being, um, appreciation, the willingness to pay, I guess, in more business terms and size of the market, um, it being big enough to actually sustain a business and being small enough to not be immediately smothered by competition. So once you score in all of these five um, or four rating steps, I guess, once you score a high score there, this audience might be really cool and can warrant deeper investigation into their communities, into the problems they have, into existing businesses. What do they do? How do they price, right? getting some inf information on the competition, building another niche in this existing niche. Um, that's what these, these steps are for. And you will end up with a really cool long list of a lot of ranked things. And the great thing about it is you can act on it now. You can build a business for your top audience. And then something may happen a couple of years down the line. You may sell the business or some, you just kind of completely hire people into every role. You just own it and they, they do it for you. And then you're just sitting there wanting to build another business. I definitely know you want to as, a, as an entrepreneur, because once you sell one, you want to build another one and sell them again. Like yeah. uh, I, I will not believe anybody who will tell me that they sold one and are now completely happy forever. No, they just need to do something else again. And <laughs> at that point, you can return to the list because you already did this kind of scoring and you can do scoring again and see what changed, like where was the shift and what other audiences did I get to know in between. It's, it's just really nice to have that as a document that you can act on immediately in the future should need be. So just a few follow-ups. The appreciation phase of this, 
I kind of look at it as like a filtering process. The awareness column, you basically, the idea is to completely broaden your horizons and start to think about things that would be completely outside of everything that maybe you spend all day doing. And then each column of the five starts to score and kind of things end up dropping off the list that don't score well. And you get over to appreciation or willingness to pay. And now you've built businesses and products, one for teachers and one for bootstrap founders. Um, How did you score those two audiences? Because like at first blush, you would think that those would be people that either don't have the means to be able to spend on external tools or you know, bootstrapping just the word sort of (laughs) means kind of like scrappy or, you know, they have a certain point of view that says I can do this on my own. I don't need other people. So how did you score those two audiences when you went through this? Well, for Zero to Sold, it was was fairly easy as a book, as an info product. I just looked, are there other books that are tangentially related to this that sell well? And Mm -hmm. um, like there's, Paul Jarvis, I mentioned that company of one. There's Rob Walling with uh, Start Small, Stay Small. That book is out there. And um, there's the, the e-myth and built to sell all these books that are in the business world that are applicable to bootstrap founders that um, not necessarily aim particularly at bootstrap founders, not the latter two, but the first two certainly do, right? Mm-hmm. And um, knowing that Paul Jarvis is still an Amazon bestseller years into releasing his book, I thought, yeah, can compete with that guy. And um, I put my book into the same category. And now when people buy my book, his is suggested. And when they buy his book, mine is suggested. So that works for me, right? It's, it's, a, it's competitive analysis, pretty much. Yeah. I figured out there was competition. People were already paying for an audiobook. They were paying for a paperback. And they were paying for an ebook. Well, that's what I'm going to be doing, right? It's just like figuring out what the competition is doing and essentially pricing along the same lines, which for books is pretty much what every author does, right? The, mm-hmm. And with the exception of technical books, like for software engineering or for like agile scrum, this kind of very specific stuff where people can um, often charge like 40, 50, 60 bucks because those books are usually bought by businesses. So it comes out of mm-hmm. a budget. For bootstrappers and for small business, usually it's around the 10 to $20 mark for, for any kind of info product. And that's where I stayed as well. And that's where all of these books kind of sell at, at this, this range. So I pretty much blatantly to the cent copied the price of my competition. Uh, yeah, and there's like a, there's a, something that like absolutely screams at me from your process is we haven't even mentioned coming up with like an idea or a product. Yeah. It, it is all the way at the end. And it almost feels like when you get there, you get to decide what the right application is. Like if you had mm-hmm. built a community for bootstrappers that was a thousand dollars per month for people to join. Mm-hmm. You know, you've just taken an audience that may have been attractive in one price point and like done the wrong thing. So yeah. I feel like those those will become clear as you go through your guide on on audience. Um, and I kind of ran out of steam there, but I was just thinking about. I'd love you to talk about when the actual idea shows up because in your process instead of saying i have a business idea like i'm an ideas person mm-hmm. you do all of this other work first i'm a person person that's the, yeah. the kind of person you want to be uh, let, let me let me quickly talk about feedback panda because i, I can kind of merge yes, my se- second half to the previous question with this one i guess um for feedback panda the, the determination that we made for this particular step um if there was willingness to pay was also by looking into how other people were already solving their problem. And if they were paying for tools like ours would be eventually, right? Mm-hmm. And, and online teachers, like teachers, they don't get paid anything, right? Teachers are severely underpaid. They are severely mm-hmm. understaffed. They are severely undersupported. Like we were um, a shining beacon of help in a world where nobody helped people, really, honestly. Like there was no other tool like ours. And I think think to this point there still isn't any like that is how under um like even with a product that grew from zero to fifty five thousand dollars mrr in two years there is no competition in the space people just don't care about online teachers sadly but yeah. um, there are a couple products in that market that 
um, they, they're not necessarily aimed at those teachers, but they use them for, um, they use ManyCam, which is a little tool that you can hook into your, your webcam and it automatically adds a little background and you can press buttons and then a little dragon flies into your screen in the background. You know, if you have to engage Chinese children who don't speak a word of English and you want to try to teach them English, it's kind of cool if you have a couple dragons flying in. They just get them engaged, get them stuck to the screen. And that kind of tool costs people $60 for a one-time purchase. And it was suggested not necessarily by the school, but by the teacher community to new teachers to buy this tool, to make your life easier as a, as a teacher. And when, once we figured out that this community had figured out it, themselves that professional tools are worth the investment to become a better professional, we understood that there was at least some willingness to pay money for something. And we priced our product significantly lower than we should have like any SaaS product, I guess that's the ongoing theme, like raise your prices, right? That's what everybody yep. says. Um, we priced it at $5 a month for a limited tier and 10 bucks a month for unlimited access to our tool. Um, we later increased that price. We removed the $5 plan, kept the $10 plan as the only one, and then later increased that to a 50 bucks a month plan. But that was the cap. We knew we were serving an audience where 10 bucks a month could make a difference between them eating or not on any given day. It's just mm -hmm. what it was. The, the job that these people did as online teachers was the maybe the second or third job that they worked. After like, actually teaching in a school, or even before that, they would wake up at three in the morning to teach a couple Chinese kids for three hours to then wake the kids, feed those, and then go to school and teach other people's kids. Like that... Mm for the majority of our customers, was their life. So we didn't charge them 50 bucks a month for a tool. That was easily worth it, right? Because our tool yeah. reduced like a task that took two hours a day to five minutes a day. That is over a month. That is, let me do a math, like so somewhere between 50 to 60 hours of time saved. That's like three days of work yeah. time. That is worth $50. But we knew that either either way the people would be able to afford this even if we made clear how much time they'd save they would rather spend more time than 50 bucks because the yeah. time doesn't pay for food 50 bucks certainly do so we, that that's where we, we figured out if we price it low enough and um we didn't have competition so we didn't have to worry about being undercut we could just continuously grow our customer base and they, there were people who said i love this i cannot afford it which is heartbreaking to see that somebody cannot afford a $10 a month payment. And we often had people who, whose credit card would bounce because it was just overdrawn for the month. And we often gave them little months for free, right? Okay, here, have next month for free. Don't tell anybody, but keep, keep this because we know that if you now don't have access to this, you can teach even less because you have to work more on your administrative stuff, making even less money making them less likely to come back to buy the product. So giving them just a month for free was always sort of a kind of charity thing, but it also kept them retained as an audience and as a customer. Um, mm -hmm. And figuring out their problem, that, that, is, that is interesting because it really boiled down to observing the community and the community at large, looking into what people were talking about, what people were complaining about, and people are always complaining, whatever community you're in. It's... Yeah. It differs, uh, the tone and the amount of insults and, and swear words might differ. And I guess the location of where people talk is, is also important for that, but there will always be complaints. Straightforward or veiled in some way, that you will always find people complaining. And in, in the community that Danielle was in, she was in lots of Facebook groups and um, the little external communities that those Chinese schools had established for their teachers. People always complain about being overworked can't really help with that. Like that's just a job you took. Um, mm -hmm. Having conflict schedules between multiple schools because there was a lot of Chinese companies trying to recruit all these American teachers. So mm -hmm. some would teach for one school for an hour, then switch to another school for another hour, and kind of would have to, um, yeah, uh, just de, de conflict their schedule. That would have been an interesting avenue, but it wasn't critical because it only really affected like five or ten percent of all those teachers. Most teachers taught for one school, so we looked at those and. For those people, the most critical thing that they talked about all this time was feedback, because it was the one thing they had to do outside of class 
that they won't get paid for because it was like after class, you're supposed to write a couple um, lines of feedback. But if you didn't do it within 12 hours, you wouldn't even get paid for the class you taught. Like mm. that is critical, right? Because if you don't get your feedback right, after a day of 10 hours of exhausting at work, they're teaching kids over the internet, right? They're doing all this dancing and singing all the time because there's like a five-year-old Chinese kid that you have to keep engaged for 25 minutes. Better yeah. dance and sing, right? So yeah, right. if you if you don't have any energy anymore, your feedback will be bad. Your ratings might be bad that the parents give you and your, your pay may be ducked or something, right? So us allowing them to do this much better and um, getting more pay and um, all these things was pretty clear that this was in itself a critical problem. And we noticed that Danielle had the same problems when she taught. She was um, she she had an injury. She couldn't couldn't leave the house, and she's a, a classically trained opera singer. And if you are a musician, you can't work from home, right? As much as all these weird Zoom concerts that we've been experiencing <laughs> over the last months are trying yeah. to suggest, an opera is the place to sing opera, an opera house, and a recording studio is a place to record. So if you are a musician and you can't do your job as a musician, you have to find something else. So she was teaching online to bridge the time where she was um, injured. <laughs> I guess luckily for us, because that allowed us to build th this product, right? Because she taught so much that she had to write so much feedback that it was crystal clear that this was um, th the, the one thing that kept her from truly enjoying her job. Teaching was great fun to teach these kids these smiling faces and the camera learning stuff you know teachers love teaching and they love mm -hmm. sharing and, and they love communicating and they don't like love writing reports like who does right and if we could solve this for her that would already have been a win but noticing that everybody else had this problem in the audience because it was the most mentioned one that gave us this kind of um yeah just belief at that point that this was something that when solved would be viable. And from the first moment Danielle worked with the prototype that I built for her, it immediately cleared up her schedule to two hours into five minutes. And that was just, okay, yeah, this is something that people will buy. If we make it attainable, if you make it approachable, they will buy it because they currently have this weird Excel stuff that takes them still an hour, saves them half the time, but we can take this and get it even, even further, right? So people are already spending time on this for 10 bucks a month, they will likely use our solution. So yeah, that's-, that's How did how you do the size piece of that, Arvid? The size of the market? Yeah, like so size being part yeah. of your analysis when you get to figuring out what you're going to actually tackle. Yeah. Um, I guess it's probably easy to just continue to use Feedback Panda, but how did you determine something you said that really stuck with me was like a big enough market, but at a small enough market as well? Yeah, if, if you're selling- like if, if you're selling software engineering tools, for example, you don't want to um, get into a market where Microsoft has their hand in it, like with GitHub or something, right? You don't want to mm -hmm. necessarily build something that they could just set five of their best engineers to for two weeks, and they would clone your thing and integrate it into their existing platform and then laugh yeah. at you, right? You don't want that. Or, yeah. I, I mean, they, they could probably- so That would be a market that's too big. Yeah, that, that's just like if the competition- would benefit from building what you're building to integrate into that product or run as a standalone product, then you're already looking at a much too big market. And okay. for Feedback Panda, um, first off, we knew the size of the market because the it was like this, this competition thing going on in China where all these Chinese companies, and that's a traditionally Chinese approach to building businesses, you try to stuff your business with money, grow as fast as you can, right? like VCs, ring a bell, yeah. and then you try to out live your competition to end up the winner and then dictating the market. That's okay. um, how Huawei did their, their mobile um, gadget approach. There was a lot of competition once. They just died last. And instead of dying, they survived. And then now the yeah, de facto monopolist when it comes to um, electronics. And that's what Chinese business culture is like. And, and we knew this. So we knew that they would boast with numbers. and. That would mean that if they said they had 10,000 um, teachers, they probably had three or four. But, you know, 
yeah. you, you could get like a, a certain kind of scale, order of magnitude at least. And when Daniel started in, um, must have been 2000, end of 2015, beginning of 2016, she, or end of, it doesn't matter. She had like five or 7,000 teachers that were supposedly her colleagues. That's the number that um, was out there. A couple months later, those were 10,000 teachers. And a couple months later, those were 20,000 teachers. And two years after we started the business, it was at 75,000 teachers. So we wow. knew from the beginning, even before we built the business, that it was growing quite significantly. It was an, an, yeah, an exploding market, if you want to look at that. It certainly had certain hockey stick uh, characteristics. And it also um, was clear to us that even though it was exploding, it was not gonna explode into billions of people, right? Because these online English teaching companies, they were focused on online English teaching. They were not just trying to replace all schools, they were trying to giving like after school tutoring for Chinese kids. So it was a market that was in itself kind of not going to um, explode too much. It, obviously, those companies were successful and they were getting more and more market share in the online education space, but it was kind of, there was a ceiling. It, it wasn't necessarily that we had a number for the ceiling, but we had a perception of the ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. If you were going to build um, an, an app for, I don't know, for, for, for podcasting or something, for certain kind of podcasting analytics like Transistor is doing, there is also a ceiling. Because podcasting, as big as it may grow, is podcasting. It's not radio. It's not TV. It's not all broadcasting. It's not all media. It's podcasting, right? It's a, it's a small, it's a, it's a giant niche, comparatively small when compared to other entertainment and uh, information outlets. So if you know that there's this ceiling, you can find that niche inside that market that you look at or... Um, you can find this group of people inside this gigantic audience that you look at and find your little niche audience and then serve them best you can because then um, the, the big players, they won't build something to outcompete you because they don't care about this little group. They care about the bigger one. And with our product in particular, with Feedback Panda, we knew that these schools, these online schools, wouldn't copy us. And they didn't. They kind of They took some things out of what we had in our product and put it into their product, but they did it in a really, really sloppy way. And it's not surprising because our customers were the teachers, right? But their customers, the customers for those Chinese schools, well, these were the parents of the kids they taught. The sure. teachers were not their customers. So anything they would build would be something that they would then get more customers with. So teachers were like employees, side effect kind of. There was something that they needed, um, a dependency but not a customer. And once we understood that they would only build stuff for customers to get this Chinese giant growth mechanic going, we knew that we were safe because we would focus on the teachers, they would focus on the parents, and we would never target the same audience. Did you have to get um, any clearance with the Chinese companies that this particular format of feedback that you were collecting would check the box for the teachers, or was it just like a simple text-based thing that they had to submit? It was a um, well. It really depended from school to school. Some had like multiple check boxes that they clicked, or certain kind of scores that they had to put in. Those weren't our audience. Our audience was specifically schools who had free text only submissions. And the biggest player had this from the beginning because they didn't want to go too deep, I guess, into building something. They just wanted to ah, give us a feedback and send it over, and hopefully it's good. And, and that was perfect for us because there's nothing easier to int integrate with with a Chrome browser extension or something than a text base, like a text area somewhere in a in a form, right? Can easily yeah. work with that. And pulling text back and forth from one application to the other is also quite easy. So that was lucky for us that they never, from the beginning at least, didn't go in, into more specific kind of rating. They added that stuff later, but there was always still the free text, and the free text was the most important part. Like that was the thing where a teacher could communicate with the parent, where they could say, your child has to learn these things or has to like repeat this a bit, or I'm not going to be here next week. Can you wait another week? You know, this kind of personal stuff, the, the kind of relational thing that you want to have as a teacher with your student and their guardians, that was where the text was. And that's what where that's the location where people needed the most attention. 
And that's where our tool integrated. We had this whole thing where people could see the history of the messages that they had written to that particular parent or the, the kid's parents, I guess, and see what they'd written about and see what encouragement they would need. Like all these little things we built because we knew it was important to them. And mm -hmm. um, we didn't have any clearance. We never had any clearance even to integrate with that product, which was a web-based application. Like everybody can install the browser extension. That is not illegal, right? And it's definitely something if you want to, like, like Grammarly, this, uh, that I use that a lot while writing, integrates mm -hmm. into every single text box that I use. Um, and it integrates into that text box too. And nobody seems to be upset with that. Well, then we can do the same, right? And that's where, that was where we took our permission, like ask for forgiveness later kind of um, approach. And it worked pretty well for us. Even though they changed their backend a lot, they changed their website and we had to update our integration every time they did. And they didn't tell us because there was no formal partnership. It always worked out. I was a good enough engineer to fix these things when they came up. And apparently, the, our acquirer has good enough engineers to do the same thing. So it, it's still a great business to, to do and um, to interact with. And it really helps those teachers, which was the whole point, right? This, that's where we started. We want to help those people yeah. not fall into this kind of brain coma after eight hours of teaching and then having to dig up, what did I teach these kids four and a half hours ago? We wanted to remove that from their lives. And we figured that this was the thing we would need to remove because they told us that this was the thing that they didn't want to do anymore. I love it. We've, uh, we've gone past our hour a little bit here. So where do you typically, for the people that are listening, where would you direct them to go to find you? My jumping off point was Twitter. And I feel like that's a decent spot. But what about specifically for the audience first project? Where would you direct people to go? Well, for audience first, I would direct people to go to audiencefirst.link. That's the landing okay. page for for the book where they can sign up to be an, an alpha reader um, or just tell me what they want to read about in the book. I, I got like a couple dozen of submissions for that. And it's awesome. It's awesome to have people tell you what they want to have in a book. Like it's just, oh yeah, that's what I wanted to write about. Cool, I'm on the right track. Or, oh cool, I never thought of that. I have to talk about this because then it's also a research opportunity for me. And as somebody who loves to learn every single day, just getting something that I can kind of jump at and learn and then teach people in a book, it's just awesome. So audience first start link, um, in general, my writing, my newsletter, my podcast, all of this stuff is on thebootstrapfounder.com. And that's yep. also where you can find Zero to Sold, my book that I already have released. Um, so yeah, those two things. And obviously Twitter, Avidkal, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L on, on Twitter. You can find me there every day tweeting about the coolest new things. I don't know. I, I don't have a <laughs> tagline to go with that. But I, I'm very active on Twitter. If I'm not like writing actively or jumping into it, any side project or something, I'm super active on Twitter. Got it. Well, thank you so much. Like that was so fun for me and, and audience first is something that I really